And so we just uh, ask God to be at work among us. We're going to be looking at Mark chapter 3, verses 20 through 35 today. It's one of the more interesting passages in, in the Gospels and one of the most challenging and uh, fearful passages in the Bible. Uh, you'll hear it when we get to it, the part that I'm referring to. One of the things that causes, I think, great stress and fear for some people. And so I'm glad to be able to be talking about this this morning uh, when Jesus says some interesting and mysterious words, and hopefully we can bring some clarity to them this morning. Starting in verse 20 through 35, it says this, Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, He is out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul and by the prince of demons, and he cast out the demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, the house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then, indeed, he may plunder his house. Truly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven, the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they went to him and called him, and a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and here are my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and my mother. This is the word of the Lord. And let's say it together. I'm going to say that again. Let's say it together. Thanks be to God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. What do you think people think about Jesus in our day? Because in our passage this morning, you get a picture of like what three or four different distinct groups of people are thinking about him and what he's thinking about himself. What do you think people think about Jesus today in our culture, in our neighborhoods, in our city, in our schools and stuff? It'd be an interesting conversation to have. Like, what do people think about Jesus? And I did a little reading, a little bit of research this week from the Barna Institute, which is a Christian think tank. Um, and actually, its leaders are from Phoenix. And they were saying some interesting things that, that people actually still have a high view of Jesus in our culture. The vast majority of Americans believe that Jesus was a real historical person, greatest majority. Most adults, not quite six in 10, believe that Jesus was God. 52% though believed that he committed sins just like any other human being. He was God, but he was also a man. And as in, in his man, uh, humanity, he committed sins according to 52%. And six in 10 say that they have made a commitment to Jesus Christ. And so a lot of people have a high view of Jesus, believe he's God. A, a majority of people uh, have a wrong view of him that in, in his humanity that he sinned. That is, that is not true. If he were in sin, then we would have uh, no hope of salvation. Jesus was fully God and fully man and yet without sin. 
But in this passage, we get this window into what people were thinking in his day and throughout in the Gospels. And so what do people think about Jesus? So we see in Mark 30, 20 through 21, what the crowd is thinking about Jesus and what Jesus' family is thinking about Jesus. He went home and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him and they were saying, he's out of his mind. So earlier in chapter 3, we saw just two weeks ago that Jesus was withdrawing from this great crowd because they were just crushing in around him. And then he went up to the mountainside and called those disciples he wanted to be with him. He appointed 12 to be his apostles, his disciples, and he renamed some of them. And then he commissioned them. We talked about this two weeks ago into gospel ministry. But as they went home, the crowds pressed on in on him so intensely that they were unable to eat, these disciples. Like paparazzi almost, right? I mean, that's kind of the image I get of like, there's this, this uh, celebrity and the paparazzi are crushing around and they won't let people eat and they're looking for autographs. They're trying to get their picture. It's like the celebrity of Jesus is so great. His fame is so great that they're just crushing in on him. And at the end of the chapter, we see that or in the middle of our chapter this morning, we see that his father or his mother and his brothers, his family, think that he's out of his mind, that he's experiencing some form of mental illness or anxiety or, or something that has, has literally made him out of his mind. And we know that by family members, we mean his mother and his brothers because of the context at the end of the passage. So even Mary is gravely concerned. And, and we know that Mary is a part of the story. In the Gospel of Luke, we know that Mary is let in on, the, the angel comes to her and says, you know, blessed are you of all women. You're, you're, the, you're the mother of the Messiah. And so she has special insight that God is doing something very unique through her son Jesus. And yet even she is concerned for him incredibly. And it's understandable because Jesus is placing himself in incredible danger. And he continues to do so. These, these, uh, these people are being brought from Jerusalem, these scribes, these experts in the law, sent by the priest in order to trip him up, to catch him, and to begin prosecuting him as a blasphemer. And so any mother, any family, brother or sister that loves their siblings, you know, would be terrified. Jesus, what are you doing? You're putting yourself in harm's way. They're going to kill you. And this phrase, seize him, is the same for arrest. And so I want you to think about it. Jesus' mother, Mary, <laughs> the beloved mother Jesus and her, his brothers are so concerned for him that they are seizing him, trying to arrest him. And so for us, that would be like an intervention. I've been a part of interventions. Perhaps you have as well. You're so gravely concerned about somebody that you love that you secretly gather them in a place and you bring people that love them to speak truth in their lives and to warn them you are in grave danger and you need help. And often at the end of an intervention is a plea, will you let us take you to a rehab facility, right? You need treatment. You need help. Some of you maybe have been on the receiving end of that, that people love you so much, they're so concerned by the self-harm that you're doing that they've taken you to a place to get help and healing. That's what Mary and the brothers are doing. They're that concerned. They're that worried about Jesus. 
So the family of Jesus, they're concerned that he's a lunatic, that he's, that he's literally lost his mind, that he is experiencing some level of mental illness, that, that, he's, that, he's, uh, that he's in danger. The crowd thinks of him as a rock star, though. He can't do any wrong. They love him. They're pursuing him in a weird way. They love him. They're pursuing him like he's famous and like he's a rock star. But in many respects, it's not to follow him as Lord of their life. It's to follow him because he's doing what they want him to do. They're, he's healing them and he's giving them hope and so forth. But many of them are just following him in that respect. But what do the scribes think about Jesus? We see in verse 22, the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying he's possessed by Belzebul, and by the prince of demons, he cast out demons. The scribes have been sent to investigate these miracles, and, and, and they're saying he's demonic. They, they recognize that he's casting out evil and that he's healing, but they're attributing his power not to him being God or being the Messiah, but they're saying that his power is coming from evil itself, that he himself is... is possessed by the spirit of Satan and is casting out demons and, and, and is able to have power over demons and so forth because he himself is possessed by the evil one. Beelzebul is a combination of the word Baal, Baal uh, the Canaanite god, and a word for house in the Hebrew. And it meant Lord of the flies, and eventually it came to represent a complete synonym for Satan himself. They are saying this man is filled with the spirit of Satan. The crowd, he's a rock star. His family, he has mental illness. He's lost his mind. The scribes, he's demon-possessed. But what does Jesus think about himself? Mark says that Jesus called the scribes to himself. Probably they've been talking behind his back and, and stirring up trouble, talking to the crowd, saying he's demon-possessed. He does this by the power of the evil one. But he calls these scribes to himself, and he, it, it would seem that he, he's now going to tell them the truth. And he says this, how can Satan cast out Satan? It, it's illogical. A divided kingdom cannot stand. A house that is divided among itself cannot stand. He's saying it doesn't make sense. How could Satan have more power if Satan is destroying Satan? So he appeals to them by logic at first in these parables. But then he tells a story with a strong claim within it. And he says this, when you go to rob a strong man... <laughs> If you're going to go into Arnold Schwarzenegger's house, back in the day when he was at his all-time prime, right? Like I've been watching all these 80s movies lately, and me and my sons watched some Arnold the other day, and it's beautiful stuff. And so if you're going to, if you're going to bind a strong man, right, like the Terminator, then you're going to have to go in there, and you're going to, if you're going to rob him, you're going to have to bind him first. You're going to have to deal with him first. So he says this. If you're going to go into a strong man's house and try to rob him, you had better subdue and tie him down first. You had better bind him because when you bind him, then you can plunder his house. What is he implying? Satan is a strong man. He's not diminished. He's not saying Satan's a wuss. It doesn't matter. He's not saying that. No, Satan is a strong man. But if you're going to go and you're going you're gonna to rob him, if you're going to pillage him, if you're going to take what's his, you better bind him first, and I am the one who will do that. That's what Jesus is saying. Satan is a strong man. 
I am a stronger man and I will bind him and I will pillage him and I will rob him of his house. And this is good news. What is Jesus going to rob Satan of? (laughs) What is he going to steal from the evil one? You and me. Those of us that are broken, fallen in sin, and who would be living under the reign of the kingdom of the evil one if it weren't for the grace of God and the one who would bind the evil one and pillage him and rob him of his house. Amen? If it weren't for the grace and the power of Jesus, we would be in the kingdom of darkness. But Jesus is saying, I'm the one who will bind him. And implied in that is the fulfillment of a promise that came all the way back in the third chapter of Genesis when everything went horribly, horribly wrong. In the story of the Bible, in the first two chapters, the most magnificent part of the story is told, which is this. God has created all things by the power of his hand, and he creates everything so beautifully, wondrously made. And in his image, people are created. And yet, because of the rebellion of Adam and Eve together, The entire world in the way it's supposed to be is fragmented and disintegrated. And in many respects, it feels like utterly destroyed. But it's not. It's broken. It's fallen. Everything that is wrong that you experience in this world, one of our leaders in the church, uh, please be praying for the Witham family. Rob's dad passed away at a young age, at like 62. So one of our elders downtown is Rob Witham. Rob's father passed away when he was only like 62 from heart disease, just out of the blue. And and today, Rob's mother is passing at any moment. She may have passed already. And as we celebrate her life and as we come together as a community to mourn the loss of Rob's mother, there will be much to be thankful for. There will be beautiful stories to tell about this godly woman who's raised an amazing family. But it will not be right. People will try to say it's okay and it's all good, but it's not. Why? Because death is a part of the fall of humanity into sin, and it's wrong. It's not the way it's supposed to be. But there is one who's coming back to rob Satan of all of this. In Genesis 3.15, there's this story at the, at the end of the story. After the fall, after everything is broken and fallen, God makes a promise about a coming hero. I will put enmity between you and the woman. He's speaking to Satan, the serpent. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring and he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. There is one coming who will crush the evil one's head. And the Hebrews have been asking, who is it? Who is this one that will crush... Uh, the, the, the evil one's head. Is it Abraham? Is it Isaac? Is it Jacob? Is it, who is it? Is it Moses? Is it going to be King David? Is it going to be the coming Messiah? Who is the one that will crush Satan's head? And Jesus comes in and said, I will bind him and I will rob him blind. Amen. I am the one who will crush Satan's head. I am the one who will bind the strong man. I will rob his house. And then Jesus says this terrifying thing. Truly I say to you, he says to these scribes, okay? Please put this in context. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven, the children of man. And whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness. Is guilty of an eternal sin, for they were saying he has an unclean spirit. 
they are accusing him of being a blasphemer, and that's the act of offensively speaking about God, right? Speaking or offending and speaking sacrilegiously about God, grievously. And he's warning them they are dangerously close. As they are attributing evil to him, they're saying he is filled with an unclean spirit and he is the Holy One of God. And he's saying you are dangerously close to committing blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And I know what you're asking. What is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? And have I committed blasphemy against, if there's one sin that is unpardonable, have I committed that one sin? I know, of course, that's what you're asking yourself. We will answer that, but I'm gonna, I'm gonna pause on answering it for just a minute. So see that Jesus speaks with such authority. He's declaring that there's only one sin that can be forgiven, that cannot be forgiven. And he's saying every other sin uh, that, that people have done and, and every blasphemy that, that other people, uh, all people have committed are forgivable except this one thing. So do you see the authority that Jesus Christ says that he has? I can tell you that all other sins are forgiven, save this one. I am the one that can speak into this. It almost seems as if he is saying, I am the one who is sinned against. I'm the one, therefore, that can speak into this reality of who is forgiven and what is forgiven. The crowd thinks of him as a rock star. His family thinks he's lost his mind. The scribes say he's filled with the evil one. And Jesus says, I'm the Lord. I'm the Lord. And in this passage, we see this classical rhetorical trilemma that's attributed to C.S. Lewis. He made famous in his book, Mere Christianity. And when you go to seminary, they have this, this contract that you sign at the end of it. And it says this, whenever you preach on this passage, you have to quote C.S. Lewis right here. <laughs> and that's why every one of you have heard this quote like 90 times, but they, we all sign this pledge. We will, we will go here every time. So I'm just doing what I said I'd do, okay? So <laughs> C.S. Lewis, Mere Christianity. Just recently, one of my nephews posted on Facebook that he just read this for the first time. He's like 27, and he's like, this book changed my life. This book changed my life. I don't know if I'd still follow Jesus if it weren't for Mere Christianity. Another friend of mine just recently wrote, read it and was powerful to him. Even today, God is using this book to strengthen people's faith. And he says this, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus, him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher. See, this is what people in our culture often say. And he's saying, I'm trying to keep you from saying the really dumb thing. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. I'm the Lord. Jesus said, I'm the Lord. He would either be a lunatic on a level with the man who says he's a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great moral teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. 
And so these people in Jesus' day, according to Lewis, are actually getting it right. There's only three options that you could go to, according to Lewis. Either he's crazy, and that's why he's saying the, same, the things that he's saying, that he's the Lord, the way, the truth, and the life. Or he's evil, he's a liar, he's filled with you know, the, the, the father of lies, or he is who he says he was. He's the Lord. And Lewis says that's really the only options that we have. Today, though, we have a fourth option, and it's this. Many people today would say, Jesus actually never said those things. That th this is a mythology that his followers have created, that after he died, and they would say after he died and did not rise from the dead, that his followers began to create a mythology around the cult of Jesus in order that they might have power that they might have influence, that they might not be arrested, that they would you know, start this cult and get people to follow them and create this thing called Christianity. But the big question for, for me, and it should be, I think, for all of us is this. If you're making this stuff up, so imagine that you're, you're Peter or you're Mark or, or you're any of these 12 that were with, with Jesus on the mountain that he's setting apart and, and Jesus has died on a cross and it's humiliating and you say, we need to create a religion now and a movement even though our leader's dead. What kind of stories would you create? What would you include in the story and what would you leave out? So if you're making this new cult of Jesus, presumably for your own power, wouldn't you edit out the really embarrassing parts of the story? Are you tracking with me? So if you're the disciples, and what people are saying, that Jesus never said this stuff, it's all a myth, and you're creating this thing from scratch, why would you put all this really, really embarrassing stuff in the Gospels? Great example right here in our passage. James is the early church father. He is Jesus' brother. He's one of the brothers who's with Mary and saying he's lost his mind, <laughs> So if you're creating this faith out of scratch together, everyone knew James, everyone knew Mary. Why would you say, hey, I grew up with this guy. We were, you know, in the same bedroom. We, we were shared bunk beds. We worked together in our, you know, father's carpentry business. I knew him his whole life. And then I tried to lock him up and take him uh, to get treatment. When he was in his moment, when he was coming to power, like I totally didn't believe him. And Mark was Peter's secretary. So Mark is giving us the gospel of Mark, and he's doing so by interviewing Peter, all the details like of, of his ministry. But it seems like Peter pulls him aside and says, I want you to make sure that you include that time that I lied to everyone, and I denied that I was a follower of Jesus three separate times. That after my Lord had lived his life for me and died a cruel death on the cross, and then rose from the dead. But right before he rose from the dead, I denied him three times. Make sure that gets in the story. Why would you do that? Weakness is not a great trait in our culture, but in this culture, it's a shame culture. It's a, it's a, it's a very traditional culture. You don't include weakness in your story if you're trying to change people's hearts and minds. And yet Jesus dies on a cross humiliating to the, to the Romans, humiliating to the Greeks, humiliating to the Jews who expect a Messiah who will come and be like David and conquer their, their enemies. But Jesus dies and suffers. And the very first eyewitnesses of the resurrection are women. In our culture, that's not a problem. In this culture, women had no power publicly 
they were not able uh, to even serve on a jury and give testimony. Why? Because people didn't care what they had to say. Why would you say that the very first eyewitnesses of the resurrection are women? All of these elements are highly offensive to these first century readers. Why would you include them in the accounts? And the only historical plausible reason is that these incidents would be put in these accounts is because they actually happen. So it's not myth. These words of Jesus are, are not myth. What, what happened, the gospel accounts are worthy of our trust. Jesus is worthy of our trust. And what I want to appeal to you today is Jesus is the Lord. Jesus is Lord. And if you've not read the great book, The Reason for God by Tim Keller, it's sort of an updated mere Christianity for today in a sense. I just highly recommend that you do. And he unpacks all the kind of things that I was just talking about. What does Jesus think about me? We've talked about what Jesus, what people thought of Jesus in his day and his age. We've talked about what Jesus thought of himself, that he's the Lord. And what does Jesus think about me? What does he think about you? Back to the scariest passage in the New Testament, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. In Mark 3, I'll read it again. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven, the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter. All sins will be forgiven, and all blasphemies will be forgiven, except one. Whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. And of course, <laughs> if you have any faith in Jesus Christ at all, and trust that the Bible is God's word, as you hear this, the obvious question is, what is that sin and have I committed it? What is that sin and have I committed it? First of all, I'd say it's very important to interpret Scripture with Scripture. And so throughout the New Testament, we are told that the gospel is this, that we are not saved by our own works and our own righteousness, but on the record and the merits of Jesus Christ. And we are told things like Romans 8.1, that there is therefore now no condemnation for anyone who's in Christ Jesus. Romans 5, we just read in our confession of faith and assurance of pardon, these amazing assurances that we have been justified, that means made righteous by the work of Jesus, that we're forgiven. Jesus himself says all manner of sins and all blasphemies are forgiven except this one blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. So Jesus says that there is, that every single sin and every single blasphemy is forgiven, but this one, and all of us have sinned, even today, and all of us have committed all manner of blasphemy. We have. We have spoken against God. We often take God's name in vain. Many of us who even follow Jesus will take his name, Jesus Christ, in vain, and many of you say, oh my God, all the time, without thinking about the holiness and the power of his name. You blaspheme. But all of these, all of these will be forgiven in Christ. All of us are forgiven in Christ as we look to him by faith and repent except the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. What is that? Only one is not, only one blasphemy, only one sin is not forgiven. And friends, it is this. It is the continual rejection for the cure. It is the continual rejection of Jesus Christ. It is a continual rejection of and to deny him and what's been offered to you in him. And it's to attribute uh, evil towards him. So 
William Lane is this uh, author and uh, commentator, and he writes this, Blasphemy against the Holy Spirit denotes the conscience and deliberate rejection of the saving power and grace of God released through Jesus' words and actions. It denotes the conscious and deliberate rejection of the saving power and grace of God released through Jesus. And I would add, not just in a moment, perpetually throughout your life, and you've known people like this, that are so hard-hearted that they won't receive the goodness of God in Jesus. Mary Healy writes this, in the context of this passage, passage, it is to harden one's heart so completely that one defiantly refuses to recognize the action of God and even attributes to evil the good works done by Jesus and the power of the Spirit. It is therefore to close the door of the Holy Spirit's inner work of conversion And hear this, the point is not that there is an exception to God's mercy, and that's what we're all looking for. What is that exception? What is that exception? The point is not that there is an exception to God's mercy. Rather, the point is that the persons who persist in such willful blindness refuse to repent and thus choose to clothe themselves, close themselves to the forgiveness that God offers through Jesus. I hope that brings you comfort. There isn't this this sin that if you accidentally commit that you're done, that there's no hope for you. That, That does not exist. And there are many sensitive followers of Jesus that I've had to remind constantly. Like, so if you come to me and say to me, I'm fearful that I have committed blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. You need to let me know and assure me whether I have or not committed this. The person who has the sensitivity to speak to a pastor about this issue and say, I'm concerned, I've committed this sin. I promise you, you haven't. Why? Because the person who has committed this sin wouldn't care that they've committed this sin. They would be in such radical opposition to the grace of God in Jesus Christ that they would never even have a burden about it. It is this persistent hard-heartedness against the gospel. That is what this sin is. And so I encourage you, friends, if you're struggling with this, and if you're struggling and battling at all, rest in the gospel, the saving power. There is not a single sin that the cleansing blood and work of Jesus Christ can't Forgive, he says so, except to blaspheme against the Holy Spirit who perpetually is sharing with us the good news about the Son, Jesus Christ. But there is a warning to some of you, perhaps, who are persisting in unbelief to not believe in the gospel. And at the end of your life, you could prove this to be true of yourself. If you would persist, if you would persist throughout your life in a hard-hearted state, rejecting the goodness of God to you in Jesus Christ. That is the only sin. That is the only blasphemy for which there is no forgiveness. So, at the end of our passage, Jesus seems to be so harsh with Mary, does he not? And with his brothers. And there are times throughout the passage, you know, throughout the Gospels, where Jesus does seem to be harsh with his family members. The first miracle at the Cana of Galilee, when he creates water into wine, he's like, woman, it's not my time. Why are you bothering me? In this instance, they say, your, your mother and your brothers are out there, and they're terrified that you've lost your mind. They're look, they want to seize you. They're looking for you. And Jesus instead points to people like you and us, the disciples of Jesus, those in the crowd, and he says, these are my mother, and these are my brothers and sisters. And rather than getting caught up, like, why was Jesus so harsh on Mary in this moment? 
I don't know. I'm not even going to try to answer that. Instead, I want to point you to the fact that he looks beyond his biological family, who are right there, and instead turns to those who have looked at him by faith and said, these, these are my mother and these are my brothers and sisters. So what does Jesus think about us? The Lord, the Holy One of God, the one who is binding Satan so that he can rob him, he says of you and me that we are his, his family, that we're his sons, that we're his daughters, that we have forgiveness. And I beg you, friends, rest in that good hope. Who do people say that Jesus is? Who do you say that Jesus is? If he's truly your Lord, then you are truly his son or daughter. Let's pray. Father, we, we thank you for your word and for the details of these very real stories of your life. And Father, we thank you for the window that your son gives us into your heart, that you are altogether holy and righteous, that you're the Lord of lords, the King of kings. Before anything was, you were. And yet, in your humility, in your grace, in your love. You came and you served us on this earth to live a life, the life that none of us could live, a perfect life without sin, tempted, yes, but never in sin, and that you died the death that every single one of us deserved. We deserve to be cast out. We deserve to not be uh, among those who would be close to God we deserve to go to the cross, and yet you went to the cross on our behalf. You lived our life. You died our death. You rose from the dead on our behalf, victorious over sin and death. And you offer us this new status, not as slaves only, not as servants, although we are, but as sons and daughters. And, O oh Father, may this church, this group of people here assembled this morning, may we be filled with that spirit, with that hope, and that encouragement to then go and be a people that offer that hope and that encouragement to others, to live outside of ourselves, to give our lives away in grace and mercy because of your goodness to us. We pray this in Jesus' good name. Amen.